0: Welcome back after a little break to Fintech Insider News, your weekly go-to podcast for all things fintech and financial services. We read all the news so you don't have to. Fintech Insider is brought to you by the folks at 11FS. We believe digital banking is only 1% finished. And us, well, we're here for the next 99%. To learn more, visit 11FS.com. I should also mention we have a few really exciting roles open at the moment. So if you're a product manager or a designer, then go to 11FS.com careers and find out more. My name is Aidan Davis, and we are recording from London, the capital of fintech, up here in Level 39 at the Mighty One Canada Square. But some sad news to kick us off this week. This is our last show in Level 39 for a while, as we are off to a new home next week. Today is my first time on point for the show, so I'm thankful that I am backed up by a wealth of talent. We have my esteemed colleagues and regular hosts, David Breer. Say hello, David. Hello. Jason Bates. Say hello, Jason. Hey. The ambassador himself, Chris Skinner, say hello. Good day, Mr. Davis. <laughs> hello. And superstar and all round awesome person, Gela Boscovich, say hello.
1: The chat cleared, apparently. <laughs> did
2: Gela get like all round
0: awesome person yeah, and
1: stuff? Like, She oh, sat next oh. to me. Uh, She's <laughs> got it. Location, location, location.
0: <laughs> uh, before we get into the news, uh, a quick stats update on the podcast from David.
3: Yeah, suddenly I'm the Stato on this one. But um we've had some really good responses, I think, over the last couple of weeks, which is amazing. So we hit the number one spot in the US, which... Yeah, yeah, us uh, it's pretty good so number one podcast in the business section on iTunes so well done us I think in the other countries that were being downloaded in I think we're about 20th in about 70 of the other countries which is pretty impressive uh, and we've had reports that tier one banks are now making it mandatory listening in, in, the, in the UK which is pretty impressive as well so some really fun spikes in in terms of
2: the listening you will there. listen to us uh, yeah.
3: and you
1: will like it if, if you're if you're listening
3: Listening
2: to this because you've been told to. I am so sorry.
3: Uh, no, like uh, to be honest, like when I was at a bank, I had to do all sorts of random training type things. So like, the, just getting off lightly, listening to a podcast seems quite fair, doesn't oh, it? Oh, so this is
1: what not to do. Ah, ah, no wonder <laughs> I'm here.
3: <laughs> but anyway, yeah, thank you very much for listening, guys. We really, really appreciate it. So on with the news.
0: First up, we've got Jason talking about a story on Engadget. Smart Card Plastic, Plast C, Plask, however you want to pronounce it, yeah, goes I've under no, despite... no idea really yeah. how you pronounce that. <laughs> They've gone under anyway, so we won't have to say that name any more times, uh, despite $9 million in pre-orders and without shipping a single card. Jason?
2: Yeah, well, I, this was one of those card startups that was very fashionable a couple of years ago uh, there was this big move around well what electronics what things can we build into cards oh it can have a display or oh, it can have a fingerprint reader or oh, it could have a cvv code that changes every time you use it uh, which just seems a little odd it, it you know you're adding a display you're adding a thumbprint reader will it be able to make calls will it have apps hold on don't we have a device like that <laughs> everyone had a lot of promise because there was Coin and Swipe and a few other people who were all around the same time launching stuff or or uh, looking for investment. No one created anything that, that really went out there. And and I'd, I'd question whether there's a, a need for it fundamentally. Uh, but it was definitely a, a, a company of that era.
3: But 80,000 pre-orders, right? So 80,000 people thought they would want one of these things. You know, I, I kind of, that's quite... Dissolve, isn't
4: it? I kind of think, you know, card-based innovations is a bit like launching a CD shop now, just as everything is streaming, you know. Who wants it?
3: bizarre yeah well nobody's getting it i think that's the uh, as it turns
2: out but you can you can see the pitch around oh everyone's carrying loads of plastics what about one card to rule them all you know and here we go and that was the the pitch unfortunately it's not really a customer problem for people if you ask them about it they go oh yes i'm you know yes or maybe i would carry less cards but in the end is it is it really a problem? No, it's not
1: that much of an issue. I mean, two, three, five different cards. There, how can you aggregate a loyalty program on a single card? number of different problems there. But what I find really interesting is they actually got someone to sink almost $7 million into the venture. And then they had invest, minor investors or people purchasing this. And there is no recompense for anybody. I mean, I think on crowdfunding, they at least understand the risk. But they didn't do that. This is literally wiped out.
4: Not so much plastic fantastic, then. <laughs>
1: And
3: I think you probably pointed out one of the features in here, actually, uh, that makes probably no sense if you go beyond this, really, was actually putting a fingerprint scanner in it. And unfortunately, this is what MasterCard have actually done in the next story, isn't it, Aiden? It certainly is. Um I think these these stories are catnip to the
0: BBC. You, you can look through a, a whole host of these, you know, where we've changed this ubiquitous plastic card that everybody has and added something to it for not much benefit. And usually,
3: a tiny trial that never goes anywhere. So... We can add this one against the list, I think. But uh, but I think the, the point in this one that was on the BBC where uh, – so they had the chief of safety and security talking about adding uh, additional convenience and security uh, is something that cannot be taken lightly. And the idea that they can basically put this uh, into a piece of plastic, even remotely cost-effectively, just makes no sense to me at all. You know, very much like the last story, it feels like a – Kind of an incremental step in technology when actually everybody else is taking leaps. So, uh, I th- I would be I don't want to like say I'm going to eat my hat if we ever see these really going into production. But I will eat my hat if we ever see these going into production because I just can't see this really sort of working.
1: I of think it. the only thing is it's it's commercialized POS market it's for the PA, it's the point of sale market that actually is going to have an advantage for this if we have to replace all of those point of sales with a new biometric reader that's money in the bank for them but you're right it's an incremental step and the fact that you can actually fake a fingerprint touch a glass touch a plastic card take a little piece of tape boom how much do you have in your bank account, Jason? Can I get that glass he's been drinking out of? <laughs> there's really no point to it. And I think when you talk about biometrics, there's so much more interesting stuff out there, light refraction, facial recognition, live verification. Fingerprint is still static. I mean, I know I have an FBI record, uh, but <laughs> but quite literally, I don't want to be using that to pay for every time I, I go, to the, go to the market.
4: I think MasterCard's got a branding problem anyway, and that they shouldn't be called card; they should be Master Chip or something. Or MC, but that was just MC hammered, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Chris Skinner branding advice is <laughs> of a consolidant now. How is that branding business going? On? Coming along. <laughs> Slowly. I mean it was good news for someone in this story, uh, you know, master investor Neil Woodford has a 26% holding in IDEX, a Norwegian company whose sensor
3: technology is included in this card. So he'll be glad of the press, but. But like you say, the cost, cost efficiency of these things, you're going to get me going again on this, but you know, replacing of a card, like. It's just but banks don't want to bake more cost into their operation. They want to kind of take it out. So, you know, a, a much, much, much more expensive piece of plastic that you have to replace every, you know, five, six, seven years anyway. It's, and it's a
4: ridiculous to- process. I mean, I lost a card this week, and, you know, it's five days before you get another one, and it's my cash card. So not that I need cash, but it's just like you feel it's, it's an antiquated system. It just doesn't work now.
2: But I guess it ties into that that typical cycle we see of, Technology. Oh, where can we put it? We yeah. put it in here. Ah, there you go. And then there's got to be some flawed testing customer interview piece where you go and say, would you like this? And they say, oh, yes, we would like it. And someone somewhere says, great, let's run a trial. And then someone else in the PR department goes, well, this is amazing. The BBC will pick this up. And suddenly we're doing innovative stuff. But do we, we see this all the time, whether it's fingerprints, whether it's chatbots, whether it's, you know, insert technology of the day here, apply it in some way that doesn't solve customer problems, but just is applied in some way to financial services, and away you go.
1: Well, I think that's part of the problem. It's a fad. Everything is a fad. And I think in fintech, there are fads at the moment. But it moves so quickly that we're actually, we should be talking business model and not the tech. The tech is almost irrelevant. Can we just talk about the model? And then, then you pick the right tech. And it may be old and it may be 15 years old, but it's still relevant and it solves the problem. I think this is one of the things about how do, we, how do we actually, yes, what's our market perception? Are we innovative? Are we trendy? Are we faddish? Or are we actually solving a problem? And I think there's a real big disconnect in the industry between solving the actual problem and seeming like you're innovative and relevant.
2: I was talking to a, a bank recently about, rebranding their innovation lab and innovation work around customer proposition lab trying to actually put technology into the background again and actually look at at customer problems and put them at the center and then find out how to solve those rather than oh here's a piece of tech what do I do with it oh I can use it over here and here we go
1: tech is an enabler it's not the end solution
2: but if you're if you don't know tech well It's very much in the foreground because you're trying to grasp and understand it. It becomes sort of a a hello world thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that the people that do the innovation stuff well have this, they grok it. They have this deep understanding that then they can apply to customer problems. And when bankers or particular people who are put in charge of these kinds of things don't understand it, Tech has to be in the foreground because they're they're trying to, to understand how it all works.
1: Well, I think it's also KPI within the bank, right? And I think that's one of the challenges is how do we define those key performance indices? And it's really about placing tech and it's not about changing the model. So I think at the root of the problem is how do we measure change? How do we measure successful change?
3: I think, um, I think in some instances, though, it's about learning, isn't it? You know, and I think there's, there's no harm, you know, things like machine learning, things like, um, distributed ledger technology, for example, then banks have had to do so much to go and explore it, to understand it, to now get to the point where we're doing something proper with it. Mm -hmm. But just stop making PR things about it. You know, stop going out and saying we're doing a thing when actually what you're doing is learning how to understand it to stop it being the only thing you think about rather than actually how it affects journeys, you know. Well, I guess there's PR value in it over and above a new customer proposition.
0: Ooh, we've, we've added a fingerprint to a thing. That's on the BBC. We've re- revamped a service that changes 100 million customers' lives. Yeah. <laughs> and talking of uh, PR stunts, uh, I probably shouldn't call it that, but... Um, <laughs> The story that we talked about probably a couple of months ago, and I wrote about, and I've probably said quite a lot about, but uh, it's now become official. Will I am has officially joined Atom Bank as a strategic advisor to their board. I'm going to have to let someone else speak about this because I've said far too much. But that's what? dope.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I just never thought any black IP would have my money.
3: I've got a feeling. Know. Oh God! I knew this was going to be a painful <laughs> So I, I've changed my tune on this one slightly. Whoa. So I, I was, yeah, Dum, <laughs> boom, pow. And there, and there's no, there's no reference in there in terms of doing it. Like I thought it was ridiculous to start with, I'm from honesty. And I, and I, there's still a tinge of me in that one. If they're taking strategic guidance from him with regards to what to do with interfaces or on the technology or, you know, kind of any, of those types of angles in terms of what we're doing it. If this is purely about getting a connection with a demographic that they were going after, then, you know, fine. You know, people do celebrity endorsements all the time. It's just very strange behavior for a challenger bank to be spending this amount of money to do a celebrity endorsement. Uh, I think for me,
0: it's it's he's a strange choice in the fact that he's, you know, he's done something similar at Intel a few years ago for a, a horrific amount of money and created some horrifically bad products. And he's done so since, and he's said some crazy things. I, I I can, you know, he's a famous guy. He's on, he's on, you know, terrestrial TV in the UK. He's a well-known guy. But hey, he's American. Is that tied into their brand? I don't really know. And he's, I don't know. He just talks a lot of crap for me. I just wouldn't. Aww. Any anybody else? I, I like, I like the idea of like a. Where is the love?
1: <laughs> oh.
0: I'll tee them up, Chris. You knock them down.
2: <laughs> Any more songs from the greatest hits that we need to get? Um, there because is one do. called Shut Up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I think t- to go back to your point, maybe the problem here is not that, you know, you've got someone who can, who can connect or in some way comes from outside of financial services has a very different view. But the fact that they've been bought into a challenger bank who you hope embody that with everyone who works there, their approach, their product it all. So why would you need to bring someone like that to that kind of bank? If the bank you've set up, the whole ethos is about it. It's not like you're going to one of the 400-year-old incumbents and saying, let's bring us up to date. Surely as a bank that's only been around for a year or two, you kind of think, well, hopefully you're doing that already?
1: Well, I kind of wonder, we live in a bit of a fintech bubble. So for us, this is meat and potatoes. We talk about this every single day. Talk to the general customer who has nothing to do with our industry and what they think about banking. And I think this is this is probably the play. This is the reason why they're getting someone that has traction is on television all of the time is a Thank interesting you coach. Thank you. Uh, David, I didn't say it was a great idea, but I can see some of the rationale. I'm wondering what agency they hired that got this, but. Well, but, but like you say, it's, it's like the, the big thing that none of the challenge banks are going to
3: have is trust until they earn it. And actually you can borrow it from somebody else who people ha- see having credibility. And, you know, the mar- the marketing campaign around this globally will be, um, in, you know, across the UK will be much greater than what you know, Starling or Monzo or Tandem could do if you've got am promoting it. Right? So I it know,
1: might just be eyes. It really just might be, you know, read time or, or eye time or attention. And it has nothing to do with what they're actually doing in terms of culture. Although apparently he's going to be guiding them on philanthropy as well. Interesting choice. But I think there's, I think there's something around the, the play of making it normalized, that challenger banking is now normalized for the masses. So I see, I see some strategy there. I do doubt the choice. I think there may have been someone with a little bit more credibility, a little bit more understanding of financial markets, a little bit more savvy that people can relate to.
3: So who would we have gone for then? Who would we have plumbed for here if we were trying to find somebody who embodied our… Jerry Barlow. (laughs)
2: Tax
0: tax evader of the… Yeah, that wouldn't
3: have been a good fit, would it? You know, uh, housewife's choice, though. You could have…
2: Martin Lewis might might have been interesting. You know in terms it's of money-saving expert. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, someone who uh, who has a big following, who has a community, who has a whole piece, We're and you've just got to think
1: a little know. left of centre in terms of traditional. Uh, I think model. you it's,
0: it's a youth def- demographic that they're going for, isn't it? And, uh, I, I, I think, think
4: they're going for it partly because of Will I Am's passionate interest in technology, even if you think he's very bad at technology. I mean, I spoke at Dreamforce in San Francisco a couple of years ago and he was the, one of the other keynotes because he gets te- technology, not necessarily well, but he's passionate about technology. He's passionate about music. He's a cool brand. You know, there's a lot of attributes that I think we're under- underestimating maybe.
1: Well, well, we'll, let's, we'll, we'll, let's, well, let's this play out. This will be kind of interesting to watch.
0: We wish Mr. I Am all the best of uh, luck, and uh, we'll see how it plays out. We're, we might
3: be we might be the wrong middle aged people, and we we welcome Atom and Will I Am onto the show to explain this. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, then, uh, David. Uh,
0: Business Insider reported about some huge news in the insurance world. Alliance, a giant, after kind of one of the insure tech unicorns, uh, Lemonade, they've made
3: an investment. Yeah, the, I think this sort of um, you know, not just this story really but kind of like the awakening of of Tech, really. It feels like they've been probably a bit of a, a gentle giant in this place and they've been uh, slowly sort of um, arming up in the in the way that banks have probably done a little bit quicker and now we're starting to see them dramatically catching up with the the levels of investment that's sort of coming through so this one really feels like a like I say it feels like a strategic alliance no pun intended um, and actually sort of where they're going with uh, you know an industry that's worth five trillion is is sort of pretty uh, pretty impressive so when you start looking at the stats in terms of where the tech financing has gone, then it has just exploded. So we were looking at 870 million in 2014, up to 2.7 billion in 2015. So it just sort of feels like the, uh, A, the number of deals that are going, but the size of them and, and and actually just how strategic they're starting to feel for really moving what is a much more traditional uh, process than, than banking really in insurance into the uh, the sort of tech
2: age. So for people who don't know, can someone explain what lemonade is?
1: It's kind of a peer to peer insurance policy. So they group customers uh, with similar policies. People pay a flat rate premium um, per month. And Lemonade then reallocates if it hasn't paid out the claim. They actually return the money, not necessarily to the customer, but to a cause that the customer is designated. So instead of actually sitting on your premiums if they don't pay out claims, which is the normal uh, revenue source for insurance, um, they actually turn it around and put it back into the system. And uh, that's it's a very novel way of kind of peer-to-peer collective insurance funding.
4: Yeah, and I'm looking at the announcement on Allianz's uh, press pages, and it says it's an insurer powered by artificial intelligence and behavioral economics, but then goes into an interview with the chief digital officer of Allianz, Solmaz Altin, and Lemonade CEO and co-founder Daniel Schreiber. And I'm just going to read a little bit because it made me laugh. It says, why did you choose to partner with each other, Allianz's chief digital officer? We look broadly at the tech space and we're thrilled to see Lemonade's big ambitions. The company is looking to improve the insurance value chain and is seeking to use technology-driven efficiencies to redefine insurer's role, blah, 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 blah. And then they come to the CEO of Lemonade. Allianz is one of the oldest and most established global insurers. It's like old pig you know? <laughs> and it's just that FinTech um, frisson with the uh, incumbents that make, makes me laugh, I mean we saw AXA and Trov do a deal last year mm. which I think probably kickstarted some of this as well because it's now saying if you're a big insurance company, like the big banks have been doing for some time now, you've got to collaborate and find a cool brand to be associated is with it, like what well, I, I collaboration
0: own. or is it kind of just assimilation? Uh,
1: it's, I think it's there's M&A approach for sure I think over the long run, but of course you have to market it as collaboration. I think the thing for InsurTech is that they haven't gone through the growing pains for FinTech. I mean, they went from, you know, baby to adolescent instead of going through the childhood. And so I think insurers are much more savvy about how to approach and actually look at, at incorporating or taking on new tech. So it's not as, I think the growth rate is phenomenal, but they haven't gone through any of the growing pains, so to speak. Mm. And so Let's see what actually happens if Allianz can actually bring lemonade and, and to the But L- Nabay is also
4: really cool in that, um, I saw a story on Medium, uh, late last year that went, went on the circuit about a guy who lost his, um, Parker jacket or something. And when he reported it to the Lemonade Insurance Group, thinking that it's going to take ages, it, he got the money in his ac- account within five minutes. You know, yeah. Just- and
1: the, the nice thing about lemonade, if you don't know it, it is, it, you insure specific property and casualty. It's not this entire huge policy. You can actually do very, very specific things and uh, ensure specific items. And they actually do process claims incredibly quickly. It's via mobile app and very little friction whatsoever.
2: And it's interesting that peer-to-peer side the behavioral economics around well what stops people from just saying oh i've lost it or i've lost this pair of sunglasses give me the money this fact that you're you're in a group of other people that there is something about not screwing over a big insurance company but the fact we're all in it together i think with the peer-to-peer side that's a peer-to-peer lending that's in some way still trying to lean on that while being marketplace lending there is this whole You know, I'm not going to screw over an individual, but I, where I would have done with a large company, which is how
0: insurance famously works originally. We're just (laughs) just enabling it through new technology,
3: technological layers. It's interesting because all the big boys have kind of picked a, picked a partner now, right? So we've got Aviva with Tencent. We've got these lemonade with Allianz, the one you mentioned, Chris, as well. It's like everybody's picked their bet in terms of what's happening and and where it sort of moves it forward. So I like, are we about to see a a real explosion in change in, like the fundamentals of how the insurance market works,
2: but is there a really great example of a large incumbent that has bought acquired or partnered with a smaller fintech player that has leveraged that into something because on the banking side, simple whole v you know nothing really seemed to happen there it wasn't there wasn't this explosion there wasn't even a this even more successful business that was acquired. Have we seen that in insure tech or in banking?
1: Before. well i'm also wondering if we're expecting instant results i mean we talk about new companies every single week and if we expect the industry to adapt to that sort of speed of change then i think we're we're <laughs> we're smoking something Well, i am selling um, <laughs> but I, I mean so i kind of wonder if we don't have to give it a little bit more time there is an incubation period for that sort of thing and understanding how to really deploy the tech
3: well and, and actually is the change you know not with BBVA buying simple, not that simple is now this huge thing, but that BBVA get APIs better than most banks do. You know actually their their scheme is pretty impressive in terms of what they're putting out. And I wonder how much that's down to people like Shamir kind of running that because they really got it when they were doing simple, and they they acquired it not just for like what the bank is, but the fact that you've got a really, really good team doing really, really interesting stuff. And
1: BBVA is evolving very quickly. I mean, when you, when you do think about their API marketplace, they're one of the few banks that's doing it right. So is it more that we're looking at this immediate market change or perception in the market, or are they actually doing systemic change within the organization? And I think Simple is an example of systemic change. We don't change. find out
0: about that either, do we? Because if a lot of that is happening behind the scenes, so like, you know, Simple, you know, the changes that were made to BBVA Compass to make them more like a bank as a platform, that's not like a, again, it's not a massive PR story, but like Alliance spending 100 x million dollars on lemonade so like you say it's 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 hidden it's probably not gonna be that quick moving on then to another company who uh reinventing themselves slash wholesale stealing the ideas of snapchat uh, we'll have a roundup from f8 uh,
3: facebook's huge developer conference we're being very libelous today aren't we, are are we? Like,
0: yeah. uh, is, is there a libelous
3: editing Aiden's really brought down the legal I think we, 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 we're <laughs> going to consult the 11FS legal team on this one I think but we'll, I'm sure we we'll should be fine. point out
2: this is a satirical show is it? <laughs> <laughs> we need a caveat Alfred. and you also, must listen to it <laughs> also, I, don't we're, we're, I don't
0: think we're the first person to say it so there's probably a queue of people, and so we, we should be fine. So yeah, uh, Jason, a little roundup of, of what happened at Facebook. Well, developer conference. Well, for those who
2: don't know, um, Facebook has this annual two-day developer conference called F8. Um, f So it's one of those words where you kind of like, ah, you say it in your head and then someone tells you. So Fate is a two-day developer conference, and actually the name comes from the Facebook eight-hour hackathons that they used to run so this expanded into this developer conference where they announced their new things that they're developing the new initiatives where they're going and they even unleashed uh, showed a 10-year roadmap for where they expect to go which is quite something but the i guess the the cliff notes the little cheat sheet is that this year they were into ar and vr so Obviously, we've seen Snapchat do uh, nice filters and faces and ears on people for a, for a while, and obviously Facebook has uh, has implemented Stories pretty successfully in Instagram, and now has created uh, an open platform for people to put AR features, AR filters directly onto their video. So it's not only a, a kind of spoiling move, but it actually opens up the whole ecosystem for indie developers to create thousands of both static filters, you know, so you can have a little frame around you, or animated moving filters, so that you could actually see um, a headband around someone's head that says Nike on it, or little sharks swimming around a, a bowl of cereal. Uh, they've really opened up that What's bit. it got to do with finance? What's it got to do with finance? Well, I, I guess the AR, VR and the chatbot side of things, really just how it's moving technology forward. It's
4: I mean, actually to show that I've got loads of money because I can put that around me yeah. and give that aura that I'm really rich
2: and get lots of girls. Well, So when you get the payment, we could actually make it rain money.
1: Ooh. Yeah, so Ooh.
3: Do you see that? Run, rain,
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, whatever you like, Chris. <laughs>
1: Although I, I do have one thing to say in terms of Facebook. I think if they're looking at this rather and, and not taking the machine learning and the AI and applying it to incredibly sensitive, um, violent video that is uploaded, then they haven't fixed the initial problem and this is irrelevant. I, they have not
0: had a great PR week.
1: They've had no. a terrible week. And the fact that they can't actually do preventative distribution of, of highly violent content. I've live been locked time, in a
3: room for a week. So what happened? What happened?
1: Oh. There were two things. Yeah. two things. Initially, a, a man in Ohio killed a random person, posted it on Facebook, okay. and then was shot. Okay. The second was just a couple of days ago, a, a man in Thailand uh, hung his baby and then committed suicide and posted. The video was live. Okay. So there are some okay. fundamental things that go beyond finance that we actually should fix first.
2: But uh, But that is not fixable. When you look at the volume of video that people are putting up, unless you want someone to physically go through every single video, there's <laughs> no <laughs> machine. No, on should the have AI they There's no things. machine learning on the planet that can tell the difference between uh, that between those videos. When you look at the timeline that they posted, when you looked at the timeline they posted, mm. it was super fast. I mean, within, uh, no one even reported it for 40 minutes. But here's the thing, you can actually... take it taken s- off, like, super fast. I yeah, mean, the thing I could not see them doing do, any better than they did yeah, if you actually we can look do the pre- timeline. You can line. do
1: diagnostic and actually curb permissions around people that have, are potentially suicidal or that have that sort of thing that you can actually do work yeah. around yeah. preventative stuff. It's, I'm not talking about the instant you do it, but they can certainly start to monitor their users in this in the way in, and sort of nudge them in a different way and certainly there is there's gotta be something that they can do to lessen the Well one of the other announcements
0: I mean. that happened is that they've announced they've got a sixty person team working on uh, mind reading technology. So potentially, wow. you know, if they develop precog murder uh, <laughs> technology, I no, but I mean that's you can plan. actually, but, but
1: you can actually start to to diagnose people with certain types of tendencies, especially around mental illness. Sure. But and I the just, FCA but is this looking. This kind of leads
2: us into minority report, doesn't yeah. it? You, <laughs> yeah. But you yeah. like, I don't think you can yeah. have yeah. it both yeah. yeah. ways. You can't have. You know, you can't have a global platform that posts video and every everyone can post everything while at the same time having editorial control that needs people. And I'm sorry, there is not machine learning that will tell the difference between some kind of satirical video you, or cause, a test. Because that, te- that technology stuff. is developing. I mean, it is, it is. Facebook
4: has, has got facial recognition that's more accurate than your eyeballs. Um, and Google's now got systems that can actually recognize what a cat looks like on YouTube videos. You start combining that together. It, it can be sure, instant real sure. time. It can a- I, at analysis. some point in the
2: future. Uh, in the but future. I can't we can't I just can't see how we can criticize them now for a technical problem that is just fiendishly difficult at the volume. They've got a billion active
1: users a month. I'm not disputing that it's an enormous challenge, but I'm also saying the tech is out there that we can start to map and behaviors and we can start to actually predict certain types of behaviors. In this sense, I think the developer conference maybe was a missed opportunity to address some of those things.
2: So they did talk also about the AI. They did talk about fake news. They did talk about a variety of things. I think, but still, for, um, you know, the I guess the stuff that caught the news was the things that you could see. The just as we were talking about with the card, the demo, uh-huh. uh, and actually just to I guess move you know move it on, they did uh, actually do a lot of some interesting stuff around the fintech side, around the messenger to bring businesses into the messenger just as with WeChat that uh, that you could have the ability to both embed content and embed interfaces into doing things which i thought again you know it i guess it highlights that approach of uh, of it works in WeChat how do we make that work in you know in a global messenger
3: how much do you think of what they're doing in this is like a defensive rather than a, an offensive play? You know, I know we've talked about this slightly before in terms of kind of the stuff that's come out, but it feels like a bit of a copy of what other people have done, right? Well, exactly. And I think that comes back to A, you touched on a platform,
0: B, you know, A, Facebook have not done that well in the past. They opened up their developer platform, then closed it. Yeah. So once bitten twice shy. We'll see how that goes. And that's an interesting one for thinking about banks who are looking now to copy that strategy, are you going to keep it open or are you going to then close it when it's not working the way you want? Again, that's we've talked a lot about is this fintech just a feature sure. rather than you know the incumbent who's got the huge network then just coming and say, okay, well, I do that now. Mm-hmm. And they've been blatant about it. So Snapchat launched stories, Instagram launched, launched stories, exactly the same, same name, exactly the same functionality. Facebook launch stories, they just copied, yeah. but they've got... 1.8 billion users versus, you know, Snapchat's 500. Well and that's an interesting parallel with banks doing exactly the same. Will they or won't they? Um, that
2: interests me. Yeah, I think that kind of fast follower move, um, you know, are, ba- are banks really set up to be fast followers? Can they look at what's happening in the industry and then build it quickly? I, I, I question whether that's a, like a, a possible strategy. I mean, it would be great if they did the rocket internet approach of, you know, look for the best fintechs in the world and then create and launch those products. But I'm not even sure that people inside banks would would think like that, you know, innovation and ownership and we've created something rather than let's copy something that's happening in Spain that's just amazing for customers.
3: We, we were talking about this the other day, we in, in our sort of every couple of days tube commute where we talk about four blog posts that we'd like to be writing and never actually get around to doing them, then this was one of them. So yeah. like the idea that banks actually employ this fast follower capability when they're neither fast nor can they follow really, is, the, is really sort of the, the problem, isn't it? Because actually what they mean is, wait until somebody's done it successfully and because we're bigger we can then do it um, do it at bigger scale and then i just think the the problem is is where most people are going with the really really interesting stuff you're not able to follow at all now you know the all of the limitations from a technology perspective and from a uh you know even just from a where you've conditioned your customers to expect the best experience to to be you know first direct with call centers etc etc then you know it kind of feels like that that strategy is Gone away, hasn't it? So, if you're not going to be fast followers, what are you going to be in the future?
0: Lemmings. (laughs) (laughs) And and on that note, (laughs) note, we'll take a little break as we hear some words from our sponsors.
1: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription.
6: critical mass that's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces reach critical mass by joining temenos open marketplace for fintechs opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions don't just take our word for it temenos marketplace has just won reader's choice best emerging innovative technology product and service at the 2016 banking technology awards join temenos now we make the money go round Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit Strands.com today.
5: 11FS, pulse
0: update. Hi, this is Ross from 11FS.
3: Hey, and this is Megan from 11FS. In today's 11FS Pulse update, we want to talk about an interesting development in the UK market. The Dutch banking giant ING is back. Megan, what have they
7: launched? They launch YOLT. YOLT is a PFM and account aggregation app that's powered by Yodli. The app is in beta and will be free for UK customers upon full release.
0: I've had a look around it and I have to say I am pretty impressed. What are the three key features for you?
7: Well, the first is that users provide the date they are paid on. Then based on what YOLT knows about the customer, it tells them what their smart balance and left to spend amounts are, with a nice countdown to when they're paid. Two, it provides analysis via cards on the app landing page. These can be anything from the most frequently visited shops or stores each month through to top spending categories per week. And third, with these cards, you can either like or dislike them in one click. So this could be uh, a leading element uh, of personalization or perhaps a way for YOLT to evaluate beta users' preferences.
0: Great! Definitely an app that we'll be keeping a close eye on. Where can listeners see a real customer setting up and using the YOLT app?
7: Head over to our website at 11FS.com and look up 11FS Pulse. On there you can play back this and hundreds of other end-to-end digital banking journeys from traditional and challenger brands from around the world.
0: And on with the second half of the show... Uh, next up, we've got three stories from China, our usual uh, visit east. Alipay, WeChat, payment volumes, unsurprisingly, have gone through the roof. Uh, Alipay have also merged with Pay, which is an interesting one. And also, uh, Yubao, uh, are now the world's biggest fund with $165 billion under management, knocking JP Morgan into second place. To speak about all those stories, I interviewed James Lloyd, to see what you thought about them. A quick note before we begin the interview, uh, we had some real difficulties with the audio quality uh, on this. Apologies. Cool. Hello, James. Thanks for joining us yet again. Uh, great to have you back. Uh, good to be here. Feeling, feeling like uh, part of the furniture
6: these days. I'm such a regular uh, contributor, but yeah, always happy to join.
0: Uh, so we've got three stories, two quite interrelated to talk to you today. Uh, first one, we'll, we'll just talk again about huge scale and volume. Uh, and this week there was a re- report from the United Nations that said that Alipay and WeChat pay uh, take around about 2.9 trillion US dollars online now, which is a fourfold increase, uh, sorry, a 20-fold increase over the last four years. Uh, James, what do you think about that scale?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think we probably need our own subset of stories here that just relate to the size of the Chinese market. Um, but, you know, in, in this specific case, of course, you know, we've been talking about Ali and Tencent for some time. I just think they are they have grown up in an environment that is extremely conducive to growth. So Alibaba, of course, owning, you know, effectively owning the e-com market in China to a large degree, uh, Alipay being the primary payment instrument, it's just provided for phenomenal growth as as the economy grows, as retail grows, as e-commerce grows. Uh, And then conversely, Tencent operating the WeChat messaging platform, you know, 896 million monthly active users, uh, you know, a huge proportion of whom latest figure is 600 million, although I've heard north of that, uh, have, have associated payment credentials. So we're just seeing these two phenomenal platforms Increasingly driving so much of the retail payments activity in the country, it's, it's quite tremendous. One one aspect of this report, which was excellent, I mean, we we know the authors uh, at Shanghai quite well. Really excellent report. One aspect that has been underreported, and indeed has only been kind of formally announced in the past week or two, uh, is the Chinese regulator introducing uh, a third-party payment clearing in China. So, you know, again. Ali, Tencent and others have directly integrated with banks over the past number of years, but now increasingly they'll be pushed through a kind of central reporting system. So, again, we'll, we'll see continued growth, but I think we'll also see, uh, you know, some interesting regulatory changes over the coming months and years as well.
0: And talking about growth, that leads on to the second story, which is uh, Chinese money market fund becomes world's biggest. Alibaba owned Uebo. Uh, has a hundred and sixty-five billion dollars under management. Again, phenomenal numbers.
6: Look again. Let's file this under China is big. Um, you know, equally, look, it's fascinating. The, the background of Weibo, as I'm sure you know, is just given the size of the Alipay payment marketplace, or just given the volume um, of payment transactions passing through it. You know, they realized a lot of people are leaving money on the wallets. Um, and actually just for a variety of regulatory reasons, Ali were able to provide an interest rate that was higher initially than, than the banks could uh, from a regulatory perspective. So actually the encouragement for people to move money out of their bank accounts onto the Alipay wallet and leave it there so as to attract kind of better than market rate interest uh, was, was tremendous. So in fact, yes, you know, we're now hearing it's the biggest money market fund in the world, but indeed they, they hit uh, pretty phenomenal figures within about eight or nine months. They were in the top five money market. Um, so, so not only is this huge, it's also grown at a speed that is uh, unlike anything else we've seen. Again, you know, how this all ties together in the Alipay and financial China story is, you know, they're building an entire ecosystem of financial services. So payments is a core uh, component of it. You get transaction data, you get customers, you then begin to offer them investment products such as this. They're of course now offering lending products, insurance, you know, credit services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So again, you know, as I say every time I'm on China is really, really fascinating. There's a lot we can learn in other markets, uh, and, and be prepared because these guys are going international.
0: And I think linked perfectly to that uh, is the story about Ant Financial um, acquiring Singapore-based payment service Hello Pay. Uh, again, that's an expansion outside of China, but. Uh, again, more scale?
6: More scale, uh, and again, very much in line with the international ambitions of some of the bigger players. Uh, I I guess a a bit of context to this story, Alibaba um, had taken a majority stake in Lozado, which is uh, actually Southeast Asia's largest e-commerce company, um, probably about a year ago, in fact, about 12 months ago. Um, I think it's fair to say that wherever Alibaba goes and financial, technically, uh, financial affiliate, uh, tends to be not too far behind. And in this case, after some period of assessment and examination, let's say, they have formally um, acquired the Helipay assets, which were effectively the payment instrument of of the Zada Group across Southeast Asia. So think of it as a PayPal equivalent. They've acquired them and now announced that they're rebranding as, as Helipay in several of these Southeast Asian markets in Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, and so on. I think this is as much about licensing as anything else. I mean, market entry is the name of the game here. Uh, Alibaba, Alipay and Financial have uh, extremely strong payment credentials, capabilities and teams. And I think right now as they internationalize, they're looking to deploy some of that knowledge and skills with the requisite licensing in, in many of these markets. And, and frankly, that's what paper provides. So, yeah, again, very much in line with their regional ambitions to Uh, replicate the ALI model in other markets. And it's not the last we're going to see of it. I mean, their ambitions are to have 2 billion customers uh, by 2020. And there's only so many market combinations uh, that you can leverage to do that. So, yeah, not the last we'll hear of this particular story.
0: No, I I suspect there'll be more big acquisitions to uh, hit that total. And I'm not sure anybody would bet against them maybe reaching that before 2020, but we'll see. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, and we'll speak again soon. What do we think about them in the room, then?
4: I just think it's an incredible story, and as you know, I'm always writing and talking about Ant Financial, Alipay, Alibaba, um, also you know, WeChat, Tencent and Badoo, um, mainly because the big difference about these companies compared to the American internet giants, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, is that they've got integrated social, commercial and financial services in their apps. So I kind of think of Alibaba as being a bit like Amazon uh, merged with Facebook, merged with PayPal, which makes them a phenomena. Um, and they are going global and that's what their strategy represents in that, um, you know, the HelloPay merger with Alipay is particularly interesting because that's giving them a complete coverage of Asia from China right through to Southeast Asia, um, Singapore, and all the countries in between, Indonesia, etc., as well as India because of Paytm, their investment there. Um, the figures about um, Alipay WeChat on um, payments, um, you know, approaching almost $3 trillion. Uh, and I see various figures. I see figures in China overall of $5.2 trillion in uh, mobile inter- and internet Payments last year. You know, it was only eighty million dollars four years ago. You know, this is incredible. And it's to do with they didn't have cards in China. So the fact that people didn't have a payment system means that when the mobile payments apps came out and offered them a payment system that was easy, everyone's just immediately dived into it and, and are using it. it's just the
2: number that gets me trillion. Yeah. Uh, and I was looking at the number of because- the States is about
4: 112 billion.
2: Well, well, I was even trying to sort of conceptualize that. And there's a great um, thing on, I think it's Wikipedia around, it would take 12 days of seconds um, for for a million seconds. A million seconds is 12 days. So a billion seconds is 31 years. A trillion seconds is 31,000 years. So if $1 was spent every second through, you know, and you wanted to get to 3.7 trillion. That's 94,000 years. That, that's a crazy amount of money to, uh, to go through one play, uh, payment platform. It yeah. also goes back to the
4: scale of the economy in China. I mean, you know, you're talking about 1.2 billion people all now having access to a payment system that they never had access to before. And that's reflected in the same way in the Waibao Money Fund, which is this um, fund that's now the world's biggest. Uh, again, only four years old, and the name uh, translates as leftover treasure. And when Risa Liu, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago on the show, uh, was talking about this, she said that a lot of the people putting money in the fund are people who never had access to financial services before they had money but they didn't have anywhere to put it and they're typically millennials who um are in rural areas and just had nowhere to to store their cash and now they have so they put it in there it's bigger than jp morgan's which was previously the biggest in the world 165 billion dollars you know just in four years compared to 150 billion in jp morgan these guys are gonna are the biggest global financial company in the world
3: it's amazing isn't it is it a merger is it a merger with Hello Pay or of Alibaba bought?
0: Uh, sorry, well, Alibaba bought made an it. investment in. Is it Lazada, who were the e-commerce giant, and then Ant Financial have come along and merged/slash snapped up the payment element of that. And so they're going to keep. It's going to be a joint branded effort as well. So they're not not going to subsume their brand. That's going to exist. But again, they they own it.
3: And I think all these numbers are just amazing. Like, can you imagine a fund that is 165 billion? Yeah. What do you do with that? Like, what can they possibly be investing in? Because, you know, there's there's economies of oh, scale from... The, money, scouting. Scouting. <laughs> MoneyGram. Uh. Well,
4: the MoneyGram thing is really interesting because um, that started as an $800 million offer and then Euronet came in and made it a billion dollar counteroffer but said in the process that, um, do Americans really want their data being held by a Chinese company which could be compromising the American forces? Uh, then uh, Ant Financial came back and said... Um, you know basically Euronet's going to come in and cut jobs that's pretty unpatriotic and have now increased the offer to 1.2 billion dollars you know so there's money that's just throwing around. So it, and so it doesn't, doesn't
3: matter about the patriotic thing Then it was just about more money? As long as you pay enough money, you do
4: whatever you, you want. more patriotic
3: so. than dollars.
4: Yeah,
1: but sure. I think what's actually interesting in the meta level of this is that there was no preconceived payment system. There was no preconceived model. And they blended the best of mobile first and, and virtual rails for payments. And the fact that we're so bound to a particular model in the West or in the quote-unquote developed economies... That's where our limitation is: is that we're an actually so bound in tradition and so unwilling to give up that infrastructure, at the cost of yes, a number of different jobs and potential commercial opportunities. But my oh my god, they 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 invented it from scratch and they invented the right way from scratch. Let's merge commerce, social, and payments. Does
3: Does that not sort of lead to a uh, like a fundamental shift in how you go about? Fixing your bank, right? You know, like, it's not about digitization of like this old f- sort of massive thing that you can strap a new neon and a new hip and hope it survives the next sort of 50 years until I leave the company. You know, uh, like, how do you, you have to start again, right? This is the, almost the narrative really for kind of everything that's coming is it's, uh, like give up and do it again, guys? Because actually, if you start from scratch, it's a lot easier.
0: But that's what's going to be interesting, isn't it? Obviously in China. They didn't have to start again because there was nothing there. Whereas obviously they're trying to buy scale elsewhere. Is that integration level going to come where everything's in
3: like we pay everything? Is that going to come in other markets? Is that going to be as easy to achieve? Yeah, like, what's the Chinese word for monopoly? Because, like, <laughs> you know, at what at what point do you get to that this just becomes such a huge part of the sort of global financial services landscape? We're we not talking about two companies. We obviously we talk about financial a lot, but obviously.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I guess that comes down to
1: regulatory. That comes down to a regulatory motive and a political motive, right? Do you want to open up the markets to an oligopoly, which is essentially what the traditional banking system is anyway? Barrier to entry is still a is enormous. It's an oligopoly. Challenger banks are a brand new thing and concept. So, but that 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 is operational efficiencies. That's efficiencies of scale. And there is a point to actually having that. You can still promote some competition, some slight uh, differentiation in oligopoly. And that, that still does give the end customer what they really need. But you've got massive efficiencies, you've got a standardized system, and it's much easier to regulate. Banking is a natural monopoly slash oligopoly. Are we there in banking, though? Like, all those things are actually all the things
3: people are trying to fix, right? It's like... We don't have cost efficiencies. We don't have efficiencies. Of yeah, scale. because you we- can
1: commercialize all of those inefficiencies, and that's what they've done. Chris, I think has something to say. <laughs> <about it.
2: laughs> For, for the listeners, Chris was, was putting his hand up, he was waving at people, he was like, yes, I'm me, like, me, me. I'm British, I, I like
4: to cue to get my moment. But um, This better be good. <laughs> I forgot my <wasn't> <laughs> no, no, not really, because I know we're going to talk later about the uh, issues with legacy systems, but I think it really illustrates the legacy economies here versus the growth economies, because China had nothing before, India had nothing before, they're building things and making things that are just incredible with mobile-first, digital-first strategies. And when I think of Europe and America we really aren't in legacy economies because our infrastructure was all pre-internet based and the best illustration of that is the number that Anna came up with in her article about COBOL and saying that 43% of the US bank's core systems are written in COBOL it's unbelievable I mean how we can survive today with systems that are 50 years old where all the programmers are dead seems ridiculous or dying sorry they're not all dead there's a few left (laughs)
1: But I think that is one of the fundamental constraints is that we're so attached to these legacy systems and we still feel like there's some sort of value in them when they've depreciated completely. They have zero value. We're not willing to scrap that. There's something in our psyche that says we have to we have to have that institution and it has to remain the same and there's a nobility to it and the trust is there. Well, you can have a brand new system and still create trust by proof of concept, proof of delivery. I don't see why we're so attached to old 'm getting will I am to be a celebrity yeah no that 's a little off center but but I, but I
2: love that that meta level okay you 've got the legacy banks and challenger banks no whoa we 've got legacy economies and challenger economies it 's like we think we 're playing this big game, but actually there 's a much bigger game in play around you know the whole economy and the financial systems you know we 're moving from world banks and central banks to arguably a a commercial central bank yeah. here it's, And that's, that's, it's getting big enough and that's why i keep saying you know
4: in sub-saharan africa with the mobile network operator story of orange and vodafone and et cetera etc etc do we really think they're just going to play around there and never think about coming over here and building the model over here you know, and everyone keeps saying oh vodafone tried that and they failed you know well they tried it because they it makes sense they will try again and again and again until it does work
3: yeah, they've got enough money and uh, enough smart tech people to um, not fail too many times until they get it right. I mean, Orange
4: has just opened a bank in France, mm. you know, and they've equally brought their sub-Saharan payment systems into Central and Eastern Europe where people are unbanked. You know, So th- these guys are all upscaling with the innovators' d- dilemma, you know, and, and I've predicted for 20 years that eventually we'll see m and merge with banks. You know, I still think we're going to see it someday.
2: But I guess this leads us on. You know, on one hand, you've got Facebook that would say, hey, actually, we, you know, we could create a digital currency. We have a chat bot. We have everyone using our platform. We chat. We can, you know, we can get into that world. I saw an interesting thing come up this week around a a token, tokenbrowser.com, that were announcing essentially an an open platform for delivering this kind of infrastructure. So a private and secure messaging app using Signal from uh, the the signal protocol, which is encrypted end to end and provides all of that that security, a user controlled Ethereum wallet, so they've got the Ethereum network, they can run apps on it, and they've got a browser then for these Ethereum apps. So arguably, that's the inf- you know a, a good pretty good infrastructure for providing this kind of thing. Unfortunately, what they're missing is the killer app. You know, it's gr- it's like all of those infrastructure projects. We've got this most amazing thing but what brings customers into it and what what gets them going. (laughs) Um, That's That's where I'm
1: investing. (laughs) I think we've we've, we've conducted enough libel or slander for this. uh,
2: (laughs) Moving on. Coming back,
0: uh, talking about Large sums of money, not quite as large as we were talking about before, but we should definitely talk about the Robin Hood app, Riding which through raised $110 Robin. million dollars at Series C this week.
3: It, it feels like one of those ones where like, you say to somebody to guess a number and then they go so obscenely high above it that it doesn't seem like a big deal. So where you guys have just been talking about trillions, then poor old Robin Hood has only got a valuation of $1.3 billion. But that is amazing, isn't it? You know, this is a um, a stock training app coming into the market and giving away a bunch of stuff that other people have been uh, trying to charge for. And there's probably lots of laterals that we can talk about in uh, challenger banking space in that one. But um managing to acquire, what is it, 2 million customers since 2015? You know, that's pretty impressive in terms of uh, actually what they've managed to achieve. So I think this is amazing. You know, like they've got a huge valuation. They've done something that, you know, really it it sort of unlocks a a new way of uh, approaching this type of market. So well done then. And another unicorn. Indeed. But
0: did they achieve that growth by being free? And then obviously now they're introducing a paid premium layer on top of that. Will that slow things down? Also, is this a big chunk of money for one of Silicon
3: Valley's own? Um, I think there's always been a paid for version of this in terms of what they're doing. So the, you know, the premium features of the service have been there for, I think, well over a year now. Um, so I think it's about a better level of capability. But for your non pro traders, the people who've just got some stocks and occasionally want to be doing something with them, then it feels like I'd take free over good. If I'm not going to be doing it that frequently, if I want to be, you know, the additional features are about having closed trading ability. So when the markets are closed, actually being able to post trades and then I'm update that the day after, et cetera, et cetera. That type of stuff for me, if it's like, you know, somebody who doesn't care about it, I keep you $10. Uh,
2: I guess it's interesting that this points to the fact that digital and the digitization of all of the the previous middlemen that used to sit in stock trading uh, suddenly takes the move of bits and bytes across the world. Financial services down to that That theoretical zero. Suddenly we're, we're living in a world where the stock trading could be a a free thing.
3: But, but I think, I think it's been a, I think the business model has taken a while to catch up with the realities of what it actually costs to do it. And I think that that's the lateral into banking for me is like, there was a time where you could justify a fee because a guy with a stamp and a thing was doing a bunch of admin. Mm -hmm. But now it's like a super cheap process to, to actually, you know, enact trades. Therefore, it's about time that the cost-saving was actually passed on to customers. Well, well, I
2: think that's right, because it, it ties into some of the conversations we've been having recently with banks around, rather than thinking about the business model and then working out how does that apply to the digital world, actually digital has business models you know digital has a whole way of of uh, successful businesses that have grown around subscriptions freemium premium of which is a great example ad supported a a whole series of business models that can actually be applied backwards into financial services rather than saying well how do we make money now and let's try and find a way of shoehorning that into the future
4: it just makes me smile because i'm thinking back to it's probably about 2009 when a banker at a conference said my grocers Sphere is a bank that opens with Google ads sponsoring the thing so it's free. And you think, how come no one's actually yeah. reacted and thought about their models and you know, built them from the ground up? Because if you're building something today, it'd be nothing like what's around here.
1: Well, isn't this a perfect example of banking as a service? Literally, this is trading as a service. And operational costs when you do service can go to the theoretical zero. So this is actually an example that I think we're going to see pop up much more frequently when we actually shift the industry to banking as a service.
4: Yeah, I quite like that phrase. I wonder where it came from.
2: (laughs) Is this where you start to quote your...
1: It's Ah, the David's blog. blog. blog? (laughs) (laughs) I've already put the trademark paperwork in. (laughs) Sorry, boys.
0: (laughs) Uh, Talking of raising money, we should mention Friends of the Show and Level 39. Alumni. Alumni, yes. The word I was really struggling to find. uh, Raising token. Another token. Not the same token that Jason just mentioned. Or the token that I saw launched this week that was a a gift-finding service. Maybe new names might be needed for one of those. There's there's going to be some
3: trademark stuff going (laughs) (laughs) down. Some some SEO issues. It's just a token gesture. Oh... This wasn't
0: wasn't a token amount of money. Uh, They raised 15.7 million Series A funding. Uh, So congratulations to those guys on their growth. Nice done. Well done, guys. Next story is a story that I I absolutely love, and I know Chris has got lots to say about this. One on Reuters from our friend Anna Herrera, uh, and it's about banks scrambling to fix their old systems, and it's talking about. Code is coming out of retirement to uh, work on lovely old COBOL systems, uh, a story that's called COBOL Cowboys Riding to Sunset. I spoke with Anna about her story. This is what she said. Hello, Anna. Thanks for joining us.
8: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: Please tell us more about the COBOL Cowboys.
8: I love this story. <laughs> so I was, I'll was i tell you a bit how, how I got to the story. So I was writing a story about cloud adoption in financial services, and I asked um, someone what the practical Issues banks face when when deploying cloud, and and someone just casually told me, well, you know, like we end up touching systems that no have been there for forty years, and no one is left who knows how to how to fix them, and so banks have to call back retired employees. and I was like, what, really? Um, and then I started making calls, and I found out that it was actually quite a normal thing. Like it's not really that ch- shocking if you speak to someone in IT at a bank. So essentially, banks have these old. Um, COBOL systems that have been there for maybe like uh, 30 40 years and they've just been building on top and so there's no one left who maybe knows how that particular system works and so they have to call back uh, retired programmers and i managed to find an amazing um, person and company in in, uh, texas that's called cowboy uh, cobalt cowboys and their whole purpose is to help big companies find um, experts in COBOL. And it's a lovely man who founded it, who's 75 years old. And he's trying to desperately to retire, but they won't let him, which I thought was pretty funny.
0: There's a lovely quote in the story saying that uh, the majority of the staff, you know, some are over retirement age, but there are some youngsters, (laughs) i.e. Some over 40s and uh, early 50s, which, again, made me smile.
8: Yeah, I asked him, so how, what's the average age? And he was like, well, you know, there are some youngsters and they're 40 and 50, which I thought was, was hilarious. Because it just shows that it's not something that young, younger, a younger generation of programmers um, like to learn. IBM has been trying to teach COBOL to students. They've been like, pushing it in some universities. So I did speak to some that were learning it, which I thought was also interesting and funny but obviously it's not just a question of knowing Koval. it's a question of knowing that particular system which is, there's no system that's like another and obviously if you're making if you're like replacing your core banking system you're not going to want to hand it over to someone who's just left university you're probably going to want to be sure that it's someone that is in and can fix it if something goes wrong
0: clearly we you know we hear a lot of people say "Oh, the legacy infrastructure that we have it's holding us back etc but there's got to be a, a, a regulatory issue at this. is a huge systemic risk. And like you say, the the rise of mobile, more real-time demands on those core systems means that banks are going to have to bite the bullet and probably get away from these systems.
8: Yes. And also, I guess, I mean, and also as is, like, these, these folks, re- I mean, they're reaching retirement age, but as they say themselves, like they're not going to be around forever. So the fact that this generation is is reaching retirement age and perhaps some of them have passed on it might actually be the catalyst for banks to get their act together because they realize they can't but at the same time it's understandable why they've been delaying it because the risks are so high like these systems like accounts so like you w- might wake up one morning and f- and find out that there's no more money on your account because the system somewhere is for correctly so I mean it's it's a it's a big issue, I think. And I don't think it gets the attention it deserves because as soon as you say people might fall asleep. Whereas I think this was a way of telling it in more human terms that someone who's not an expert in banking IT might understand.
0: So I think the final word will have to be that A, there's a there's a, a bright future, I think, for old COBOL programmers. <laughs> I don't yes. give up you age of just yet or give up retirement just yet. Um But yeah, there's a huge systemic risk still there. And uh, I think stories like this do help bring it to life more than it's just legacy.
8: Yes.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much then, Anna. Thank you. So back into talking about the Cobalt story then. Chris, you can start off.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've been saying for so many years again that core systems in the legacy economies like the US and Europe um, really do have to adapt and change. And this story just illustrates it so well. But the figure that stunned me was that... um in the article, it mentions that 43% of the U.S. bank's core systems are in COBOL. And the guys who have been maintaining these systems average age 62 are gradually dwindling out and dying. And you have to pay more and more to actually have anyone to work on those systems. And equally, these systems are typically not going to work in real time in you know, the digital world. And uh, you know, I've just written some blogs about this, basically saying that we need the next generation of COBOL, which is COBOLX.
2: Oh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Cobol <laughs> X. Yeah. I
0: wouldn't have a word said against Cobol. It's the finest programming language known to man. Is
3: it, is it one of those things that's like ancient Latin, though? Like, actually, if I could advise my, you know, it's hieroglyphics,
1: uh, uh, as somebody, to be yeah,
3: even further back. But it, but if you could advise somebody to learn one thing now, like Cobol surely would be like no, the most. No, that's
1: the career advice. And yeah. For every millennial listening, Go learn COBOL. You will earn a lot of money. Exactly. I mean, that is an easy path. It's a dying breed. There you go. And 43% of those banks will still be doing this in 10 years.
4: I think they'll be dead in 10 years if they're still doing this. Because how can you provide a digital real-time service if you've got this back-end system that's completely a dinosaur?
1: Well, the thing is that particular – some of those particular back-end systems are not just limited to the U.S., There are multiple banks globally who are still on these systems. They are. Tell us who. So you've got a career. You've got a career for at least 10 years.
0: But are the means of of getting around those core systems? You know, APIs layered on top. You know, you're never going to get to your full real-time, full contextual services.
3: But the cost of the upheaval of that system, you definitely can, right? There's, there's definitely ways to do it, but it's, it's about the uh, operational efforts to actually get you to that point. You know, at, at some point, and I think we've passed it that it's actually easier to start again than it is to, to sort of uh, yeah. fix the problem. So, how can you do
4: machine learning, artificial intelligence with a data system that's you know batch overnight updates?
3: I just don't see it. Slowly. Will <laughs> yeah. yes. I will give you some advice next week. <laughs> But this is, this has been the promise of things like big data and data lakes and sort of abstraction of all of the stuff that actually means anything out of core banking just to leave it as a ledger, right? So, and at that point where you've cemented it into, you know, as, as kind of oblivion where it is just literally a ledger, but you're missing out on all of the potential of what it could be, aren't you? And I, I just think it it feels very limiting, you know?
2: It's also the agility and the speed of change. You know, in the end, you've got, a medieval house with medieval plumbing and you've had a you know, 19th century mansion built on top and a 20th century house and now you've got a 21st century skyscraper. But deep inside, there's still that medieval plumbing. And your power shower is not going to work so well. And, but even worse, when you come to start ripping those things out and changing them, then you have to take into account all of those layers. And I think that that sort of the speed and the, uh, the, the fastness to market, like, how do you, how do you make this work? Mm-hmm. is part of the problem. Yeah. It's like to, if you say, well, actually we're done and here's the next generation banking and we've laid it on top and it's awkwardly architected, but it's kind of working. That's great. But, what can what happens next year and the year after and the year after that? There's, um, there's Banking is
1: not an archaeological dig. It is. You go down. You, it's no, like, I'm just saying, it shouldn't be. <laughs> Let's just put the definition that Banking should not be an archaeological dig. It's more
2: like a geological. Sedimentary rock, baby.
0: <laughs> I thought that was going to run and run, that story. <laughs> I thought we were have we the long hole there. We were, we were getting into archaeological. Yeah. yeah. On to the next and final story then, which I think is, is going to be a, a, you know, a nice, happy, joyful end to the show, not ripping something to shreds. David. Uh, over to me. Um,
3: I, <laughs> I, we always like to leave on a funny one. I'll be honest with you in terms of kind of doing it just because it, well, it makes us feel better if nothing else. But there was a new so a top 10 fintech influences to follow on, on Twitter that was published uh, yesterday on tech bullion and there's some good people on there. I'll be honest with you, Chris. Me and you were on there. But, um, but the idea that. Where did that voice come from? Uh, uh, like, <laughs> not sure. Um, but the, but the idea that Elon Musk. Who came eighth in this, uh, this, this <laughs> top 10 fintech influencers is less influential than anybody on that entire list is just absolute nonsense. So I uh, think, I, uh, I think I might qualify. Yeah. But <laughs> the dude did PayPal. Like, you I, know, I, I appreciate he's now building space Musk, rockets. You
4: know, he's a lovely guy. Yeah. But, but you were like, I could take you. Was that Well, list? no, I was, I was one of the hundred thousand in the audience listening to him. But, you
2: know, <laughs> but, but come <laughs> on. I mean, You, you guys are both on lists, some lists for influencing stuff that I know you're not your course. Wasn't there
0: a risk
1: management one this week, (laughs) gents?
3: Should we put it like that? (laughs) Like this one particularly, and like, I I agree. But I think we need to call bullshit on most of these lists in terms of doing it. I think the, the idea of uh, being influential for, for these types of things that don't take into account actually what people have done and just what they're doing on Twitter is a nonsense. Is is this
4: when we start telling people about the space rocket that we're building? (laughs)
3: Shh,
0: don't tell people yet. And on that note, I think we'll draw the news section to a close. Thank you very much. A few announcements before we go. David is speaking at the RFI Global Digital Banking Conference on Thursday 11th of May. I spoke with Victoria Bateman from RFI to tell us more about the event. So, RFI are putting on a fantastic-looking conference, the Global Digital Banking Conference, uh, which our own David Breer will be speaking at. Could you tell us a bit more about the conference?
5: Absolutely. So, it's at Gibson Hall in London on the 11th of May, uh, and it's part of a global tour that RFI Group's running around the world. So, we have editions running in Toronto, in Melbourne, in Auckland, and in Singapore and Dubai, and now it's coming to London. So what is different about um, our conference is that, maybe just to give you a little bit of context, so RFI isn't an events company. We're a global provider of business intelligence operating exclusively in the financial services sector. And what really informs everything that we do is consumer research. So every year, we're interviewing over half a million uh, consumers and 60,000 businesses and that gives us a real wealth of data regarding their banking attitudes, behaviors, relationships and intentions. And we use all of that information to educate and inform our clients who span the full spectrum of the financial services sector. So we have relationships with over 450 banking clients around the globe. Um, and they come from traditional banks, challenger banks, and more and more increasingly fintechs. So we're bringing together for this conference the very best minds in financial services and sharing best practice and content and everything that we do is informed by consumer research. Uh, So because of our central position in the industry, what's really cool about our conference is that we're bringing together the fintechs and the banks on the stage um, and talking about those really pertinent issues affecting the financial services sector. So, we're really excited. We're expecting over 250 delegates, and there's been really huge demand so far um, across the, the UK financial services sector.
0: So, with all that data at your fingertips, uh, what has it told you about great speakers? Who else is on the lineup?
5: So, so, we're really excited about our international speakers. So, just to give you a, a quick overview on who they are. So, we've got Akil Dogar from DBS. Um, and obviously, DBS is a huge Asian success story. Um, and Akil will be giving a really unique insight into innovation, particularly coming from serving the underbanked population. And we've also got... Jarek Mastelers from MBank, so most of our listeners will, of course, heard of Mbank massive digital success story um, and a really great European case study um, of how a digital-only bank became the third-largest uh, bank across the market. And then rounding up our international speakers, we've got Jesse McWaters from the World Economic Forum, and he's going to be talking about digital identity. Um, And from a UK perspective, we've got Ricky Knox from Tandem and Nick Kennett from the post office. And they're going to do a a really great debate. We're really excited about that one covering uh, digital and branch network interplay uh, from two sides of the spectrum. And uh, we've also got a, a range of fantastic panel sessions. Uh, within those, we've got representatives from the largest banks, including HSBC, Santander and Lloyds, um, and of course, the fintechs um, that's covering Starling, Samsung Pay and Bud. And, and they're just some examples of, of the sessions that we're running. A small sh- snapshot, there's, there's lots more besides.
0: It, it does look like a great lineup. There are a few uh, of our previous guests, Catherine McGrath from uh, Barclays, Ricky Knox, have you already mentioned, uh, Megan Kaywood from Starling. So, yeah, it should be a fantastic lineup. Uh, is there anything else that you personally are really looking forward to about the event?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So a um, couple of things I'm personally really excited about. So our own CEO, Charles Green, is um, going to be, presenting uh, some of the findings from a recent global study that we've conducted called a Digital Banking Council study. So we're really excited to launch the findings from that. Um, That's research from 20,000 consumers. It's a huge global study covering the latest in consumer digital trends. So some of the topics within that session will be looking at distribution trends, uh, global fintech index, adoption of new banking technology, So looking at things like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, biometrics, robo-advice, digital payments. Um, So that's going to be a really great session. Um, And we've got some really, really interesting trends to reveal there. And of course, um, really excited about the session, as you mentioned, that David Breer is going to be moderating. So that's titled Realities of an Open Banking World, obviously a really massive topic in the UK at the moment. So I know it's been a big uh, driver for a lot of our attendees who are um, focused on that particular topic. Uh, So Catherine McGrath at Barclays, as you mentioned, will be sharing her thoughts, and that panel is covering implications on the consumer, ownership, so looking at who is accountable and also forward and looking particularly into how institutions can maintain security measures in an open banking world.
0: It's certainly one of our most popular topics at the moment and obviously something that is transforming the industry. So I guess finally, do you have any special offers for our listeners?
5: Absolutely. So the listeners can go to www.globaldigitalbanking.com. Um, and we're offering a £100 discount to your listeners Um, so for banking executives it's just £195 to attend for the full day Um, and listeners can enter the code 11FS17 to get access to that discount Um, so we hope to see as many as um, possible there on the day so as I said it's at Gibson Hall on the 11th of May
0: Victoria thank you very much for joining us thank you Thanks very much, Victoria. Just another reminder that we are hiring. We're looking for a few more 11s to join us. So if you're listening and think you've got what it takes, uh, take a look at 11 forward slash careers. Well, that is our final show from Level 39. They have supported us from the very start. And we have Asif Farouk, the head of content for Level 39, here to thank in person for all the help that they have given us over the years. Thank
2: How you. many years, Aidan? Over the years, I don't know where How I was going. How many out. years so have we last, been doing over it? Over the last, Wait, it feels like years we've been doing it. It's this isn't a thank No, you. it is a thank you. I mean, it's been just uh, an amazing year of doing it and uh, a lot of that and even the, the capability of starting it was down to you guys. So it's definitely a big thanks from the team. You were definitely a, a big part of starting FinTech Insiders and we've got to thank you for it. We did the 1%. <laughs> to, steal, to steal an inspirational tagline, I've heard one
0: before. We did the 1%, you have done the 99%. Um, when you guys, when David reached out to me like last year, I just knew from the onset it was going to be huge. Fast forward, what, the, what are the numbers now? 100 and something countries, 10,000 a week, number one on iTunes podcast.
3: You've done it by I, 25% on the, the numbers there. <laughs>
0: but uh, <laughs> I would say now that I couldn't have predicted it, but I think I could have predicted it because you guys are a star-studded and um, so much more to come. So again, my thanks to you for everything you've done. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks to you, sir. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading them. That's all for now. Thanks.